love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we recorded this episode early because the day it drops today, as you're listening to it, uh, is our first day in Barcelona, and we wanted to make sure the episode dropped in an appropriate way. (laughs) Planning this trip has been wild, and we're just doing our best to make sure that we are continuing to provide quality content for you. Yep. We'll keep you updated on how our trip goes, mostly on social media, but uh, we'll put some posts up from time to time, and uh, hopefully... We'll, everything will go as planned. I feel confident that it will. It's something we've been planning for two years, and uh, you have a binder, so I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty certain everything is going to be fine. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> she prints out everything and puts it in a binder. I cannot believe how fortunate I am that uh, Kat is in charge of coordinating this trip. I did see you snicker at my binder the other day. I didn't snicker at it. I snickered near it. <laughs> I was just in the vicinity of your binder. Mm-hmm. And I snickered. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, we did get a package at our UPS box the other day from Val and Dean. And uh, in it, among many other things, were some Lisa Frank stickers, <laughs> which are now officially part of my binder. Mm-hmm. So thanks for that. Yeah. Do appreciate that. That was really, <laughs> very kind of you. Well, before I get started on my topic today, I need to warn you up front. This is, this is rough. Okay. This one is... Rough. Is it a true crime? It's, well, yes. It involves true crime, but also... Um, it involves ec- true crime, well, but it's it, not true crime? No, it, it's the result of true crime. In other words, executions. Oh. And not just executions, but executions that were botched. I saw the story in the news recently. Perhaps you, you saw it too. Uh, it was a botched execution of a convicted multi-murderer in uh, Alabama. The guy was sentenced to death for killing three men in two workplace shootings in Shelby County, Alabama back in 1999. And he was scheduled to be put to death September 22nd of this year by lethal injection. But uh, they had difficulty finding a vein. It took them 90 minutes and they, and they, couldn't, they couldn't find a vein. So they just gave up. Now it's in court 
and we don't know what the end result's going to be. I didn't see that, uh, but I do want to point out 20 years later. Yeah, right. 20 years later. Anyway, uh, we're not really sure what's going to happen. They're hashing it out in court right now. But uh, I thought I would take a look (laughs) at some botched executions from history. Maybe something that's not quite so close to us in time. Because it's always easier to deal with stuff that happened a few centuries ago. Sure. Let's start with Mary, Queen of Scots. And this one's grisly. In 1586... A plot to murder Elizabeth I was reported, and Mary was found to be involved. She was convicted of complicity and sentenced to death. Now, one of the benefits of being a member of the royal family is not just, you know, palaces and wealth and great food and stuff, but if you do get convicted to uh, to be executed, uh, you can pretty much count on the executioner to be one of the best, most proficient in his or her trade. I guess it would be his trade. I don't know of any female executioners back in the day. Sure. As a member of the noble class, once you laid your head on the chopping block, you could expect the executioner would be competent enough to complete the task with one swing. And that was how executioners, at least beheadings, were graded. If you were really good, you could do it in one swing. And um, if it took multiple swings, then... It affected your draft status when you wanted to go pro, I guess. (laughs) But this was not the case with the executioner that was tasked with dispatching Mary, Queen of Scots, to the great beyond. It was February the 8th, 1857. It was a Sunday, by the way. I looked that up because I felt like it just kind of, I don't know. Sunday, bloody Sunday. Makes it seem more real somehow. Uh, She made her way to the chopping block. She knelt down. She laid her head on it. The executioner was not successful in finishing the task with one blow. In fact, in fact, he missed her neck completely the first time and hit the back of her head with the axe. Oh, jeez. The second blow did kill her, but it was unsuccessful in completely severing the head. So it took another blow to accomplish that. Three blows in all. He then reached down to pick up the head and held the head aloft and said, God save the queen. But unfortunately, Mary was wearing a wig and the head fell from the executioner's grasp and then rolled across the floor. Well, that's embarrassing. Oh, man. Next on our list of botched executions is Thomas Cromwell. Not to be confused with Oliver Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell was a loyal advisor to King Henry VIII. In fact, he was King Henry VIII's top minister. Because of his success, coupled with his religious beliefs, he made many enemies among his peers. And those people started to, they created a smear campaign to turn the king against Cromwell. Uh, This resulted in a long list of trumped up charges that included heresy and treason. So in 1540, he was arrested and sentenced to death without trial. He was executed on July 28, 1540, and again by an incompetent executioner. Oh, no. It took several blows to fully decapitate him. Now, was it necessary that they were fully beheaded? I mean, isn't the point the death part, not necessarily the beheading part? Well, I think that uh, they were sure they were dead once the head came off. Oh, okay. Although there have been a lot of documented cases that suggest that... 
if it's a quick, clean beheading, the head can actually stay conscious mm. for a few seconds. Sure. There was a report where one guy picked up uh, the head of, a, of an executed prisoner and held it up and called his name and the eyes turned and looked at him and blinked. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Cromwell's execution didn't go well. And a contemporary of his, a guy named Edward Hall, wrote, quote, So patiently suffered the stroke of the axe by a ragged and butcherly miser, which very ungoodly performed his office ungoodly yeah i wish we used that word more ungoodly is a is a goodly word so that was a shitty day for thomas cromwell uh, but to make matters worse henry then after the execution well he changed his mind and uh, he he realized that uh he'd been given false information but it was too late oh no i'm sure cromwell felt much better after Henry said, oh, oops, sorry. Right. Maybe that's why we wait 20 years now. Maybe. Could be. Could be. <laughs> but beheadings weren't the only form of execution that could be royally botched. <laughs> royally. Hanging was not much more reliable. It's mm. a very technical procedure. If you don't have enough rope, the person slowly dies of a painful death by asphyxiation if the rope is too long, not only will the neck snap, but the head could come off altogether. So it's a very delicate procedure. I'm sorry, wouldn't that be if the rope was too short? If it's too short, it won't snap the neck. Okay. They just strangle to death. Okay. If it's too long, there's too much momentum and it could pop the neck off. The fall would be greater. Oh, I mean, both sound really unpleasant. You would be a shitty executioner. So this brings us to the case of William Dwell. He was sentenced to hang for being convicted of being an accessory to rape. He was hanged on November 24th, 1740 in England. Once he was hanged, he was left dangling for about 20 minutes, which was pretty much the norm. They just left him there to make sure they were dead. They then cut him down and they sent him to the surgeon's hall for dissection. And we've talked about that, how it was a common practice that the bodies of executed criminals would go to scientific research. Mm -hmm. They would be dissected. As he was being laid out on the table and prepared for dissection, they noticed he was still breathing. Oh, no. Two hours later, he was sitting upright and taking nutrients. And by the end of the following day, he was back to full strength. Authorities didn't know what they should do with him. So they sent him back to prison while they tried to figure it out. And his surviving of the hanging caused quite a stir. The press talked about it. It's all people could talk about. So it was decided that his sentence would be changed. He would be shipped out to live in North America in exile. So it's kind of like when a cow escapes the slaughterhouse. A lot of times they'll they'll let them live, let them live. Out their, their life on a farm somewhere. Yeah, I think that's a very similar comparison. Yeah. Though that guy shouldn't have been... No, prob no, probably not. Cows, yes. That guy, no. It was not long after that that they changed the wording of the conviction. It wasn't just being hanged. Hanged until you are dead. Hanged until death, yeah. Got it. I always thought that was interesting and wondered why they included that part, but yeah. I suppose that's an important caveat. Yeah, because up until then, you could be hanged and still live, and then the sentence had been carried out. So... This guy goes and he lives in North America for another 64 years. So he was hanged. Wow. And then lived 64 years after his execution. That's bananas. 
All right, this one's rough. On the 5th of January in 1757, King Louis XV was stabbed by a man named Robert Francois Damiens. It didn't do much damage to the king because Robert used like a little tiny pen knife and King Louis XV was wearing heavy winter clothing, so it was more of a scratch than anything else. Tis but a scratch. Damiens was easily arrested because he made no attempt to escape. So at first he was tortured... And then he was sentenced to death. And the method of execution was to be drawn and quartered. Yeah, that's a particularly gruesome form. Not my favorite. Of execution. So he was taken to the town square and his limbs were tied to four different horses. The horses then were coaxed to walk in four different directions. This would normally pull the person to pieces. The first attempt failed miserably. Oh, no. And it didn't matter how hard they got the horses to pull, Damien's just wouldn't come apart. So the executioner ordered that Damien's tendons be severed. That did the trick. It pulled his arms and his legs off, but it didn't kill him. Sure. I mean, you can just be a torso. He was a torso, still conscious, Mm. still living without Mm. legs and arms. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they, so they took his limbless torso and they burned him at the stake. Oof. Yeesh. That one's a rough one. New York. I love it to be like, and the fire cauterized his wounds, so he stopped bleeding and survived. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> On January 1st, 1888, New York became the very first place ever to attempt to execute someone using an electric chair. Okay. It didn't go well. No. The prisoner's name was William Kemmler. He had been sentenced to death for killing his common-law wife with a hatchet. But electric chairs in 1888, new technology, they hadn't really worked the kinks out yet. The first go-round, they electrocuted him for 17 seconds at 1,000 volts. It was believed that was more than enough to kill a man. After they turned the switch off, they declared the man dead. But... Yeah. Then they noticed he was still breathing. So they doubled the voltage to 2,000 watts and gave it another go. And it was rather gruesome what happened. It, it worked, but it also started to cook him. Yeah. His flesh burst into flame. Oof. At the autopsy, they found that his brain had carbonized and hardened from the heat. It was such a horrible scene that the press jumped on it, saying this was by far more barbaric than execution from an axe or hanging. That would have been far more humane. Right. So a campaign began to ban the electric chair as a form of execution. Obviously, that was unsuccessful because to this day, several states still have death by electric chair as an option. At least they give you an option. Yeah, and um, we understand electricity a little bit better. That's true. In the U.S., between 1890 and 2010, there have been 8,776 executions carried out. Out of that number, 276 of these executions were considered to be botched. That's about 3%, which is a shockingly high number. That's terrible. Now, granted, most of those botched executions happened a long time ago. As you mentioned, we understand the principles of electricity and science a little bit better. But regardless of how one feels about the death penalty or capital punishment, I think we can all agree that one being execute, the one being executed deserves to have the sentence carried out in 
one swing, so to speak. My source information, Wikipedia, Atlas Obscura, Ancient Origins, and History.org.uk. Also, a thing in the middle I had not long ago, the last official execution by guillotine in France was carried out in December of 1977 Mm -hmm. when Star Wars was in the theaters. Yeah. Weird. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Gaius Caesar, also known as Caligula, or Little Boot, was Roman emperor between 37 and 41. 
He was considered to be an extremely cruel leader who found torture and executions entertaining. Caligula often forced parents to watch their sons being killed. Eventually, Caligula was assassinated in 41 CE by a group of his closest advisors who stabbed him over 30 times. He was so universally hated that after his death, the Senate ordered the destruction of all statues of Caligula. We get a tweet from Coach Andrew on Twitter, at Box of Oddities, is it a boo effect that Jaws is on? And it's the scene where Quint talks about the USS Indianapolis. Did I use boo effect right? I suppose if you're also listening to the Box of Oddities when we talked about the USS Indianapolis, then absolutely it's a boo effect. Yeah, that story still haunts me. Just the mm-hmm. idea of all those sharks circling below for yeah. days, picking off sailors. Yeah. Oof. Michelle wrote, hey, Cat and Jethro, I'm sitting at my work desk listening to the most recent episode where you guys are discussing things you need to do to go to sleep. I don't think this counts as a normal boo effect, but I've been listening to your podcast for a few years now, probably around box 110 something. Wow. I've enjoyed your voices in in conversations so much that I actually use your podcast as my white noise at night. (laughs) Yeah, we've become white noise for a lot of people. Yeah. She says, I'll ask Alexa, pick a random number between 1 and 46, whatever the latest box is at the moment. After confirming there were no other items on my wish list that Jethro may have said. That's a butt plug reference. It's got to (laughs) be. And she will spit out a number and I will scroll to it. I'll play that episode on a very low volume through my speaker and fall asleep with your jokes and your laughter in the distance. I used to fall asleep to audiobooks a lot, but it made sense that my favorite podcast would do that too. Oh, that's really sweet. Thanks, Michelle. We really appreciate that. That was really kind of you to reach out to us. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. 
Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Played back at a frequency that even dogs can't hear. Weird, right? This is The Box of Oddities. Around 1278, the abbot of a monastery in Sedlitz made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Okay. After which he brought back a handful of soil from Golgotha, the alleged site of Jesus' crucifixion. Right. Upon his return, the abbot scattered the soil over the monastery cemetery in an act of consecration. The word of this act spread to people all over the lands, and it became a very desirable burial site throughout Central Europe. Over the next two centuries, of course, there was a lot of death, you know, the normal stuff, but also because there were plagues, there were wars, so on and so forth. So in the first half of the 15th century, during the Hussite Wars, the cemetery had a maximum area of 3.5 hectares. But because of the large number of people passing, that had to be expanded. Around 1400, a Gothic church was built in the center of the cemetery with a vaulted upper level and a lower chapel to be used as an ossuary. Now, an ossuary is a chamber or facility used to store human skeletal remains. It can be above ground or below ground. It can be in the form of a box. You can have just like a trunk that is an ossuary, or Hmm. you can have a building that's an ossuary. It's known as a secondary grave because an ossuary is not for a body to decompose. That is done elsewhere, and then the bones are then moved to the ossuary. Okay, so is it a sign of respect or just, hey, we're running out of space? It might be a little bit of both. I don't know the initial reason for doing this, but it's only skeletal remains that are stored in the ossuary. None of the sticky stuff. (laughs) So the task of creating the ossuary was given to a half-blind monk who arranged the bones. It was 1511, and the nearly blind monk piled them into six pyramids with thousands of bones in each. Now we're scootledootin' to about 1703 and until 1710, there was some remodeling that had to be done. There was a new entrance constructed to support the front wall, which was leaning outward, and the upper chapel was rebuilt. Now keep in mind that all this time, people are still dying being buried, and then their skeletal remains are being dug up and stored in this ossuary. But it was in 1870 that the place got the look and the nickname that we're talking about today. The Schwarzenbergs were an aristocratic family and one of the most prominent European noble houses, and they had purchased this property in the late 1700s. They hired Frantisek Rint, a Czech woodcarver, to decorate the plow to decorate the place. It was thought that Rint may have trained in Italy and might have been inspired by the skeletal decorations in some of the crypts there. Hmm. So Rint got to disinfecting the bones and bleaching them with chlorinated lime to give them a uniform appearance and arranging them in the church and in the ossuary. Though it seems, based on the definition that we read earlier, the church might be an ossuary. Okay. It's a little confusing. Anyway, 
Because yeah, all the decorations are bones. When you walk in, you'll notice the ceiling and walls adorned with femurs, tibias, and skulls. Bones draped like Christmas swag from the center of the room. Chains of skulls stretched across entryways. Chalices and crosses constructed from hips and femurs. It's like macaroni art, but with skeletal remains. Yeah. Bones tacked to the wall like shiplap, framing each ingress and egress. Hmm. And since the Schwarzenbergs were footing the bill for this, obs, they are highlighted. There is a Schwarzenberg coat of arms made out of bones, <laughs> fastened to the railing over one of the pyramids of bones that still sits there. The bottom right features a raven plucking the eye out of the head of a Turk, all constructed from bones. Wow. And perhaps the most striking feature of the building is the eight-foot chandelier made of bones. It's said to contain almost every bone that a human being might have. Wow, and I, and I was impressed with your Christmas decorating. Thank you. It's no wonder this place is referred to as the Bone Church. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not surprising that we know who did all this work. Rint signed his handiwork in bones. You can see his signature made of hand and arm bones near the staircase down from the main level. That is insane. Everything is made of bones. The ossuary is home to the remains of an estimated 40,000 to 70,000 skeletons. Wow. Today, you'll notice four pyramids of bones, one in each corner. These are allegedly part of the bone pyramids originally arranged by that half-blind monk. Supposedly... Once he had finished arranging the bones, he regained his sight in full. Huh. And that's part of the ceremony of this place, is that it's not a creepy, spooky place. The idea is that it's a memento mori. You know, it is a place where you remember those who have passed. I guess it would be pretty hard to forget them. Mm -hmm. But it's not supposed to be a creepy place. It's supposed to be a place of worship and a place of reverence. But the walls are paneled with femurs, Mm. sweetie. Yeah, that is accurate, yes. It's actually quite beautiful. And it's no wonder that there are thousands and thousands of tourists who visit this place every single year. It was listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1995 because of its unique architecture and obviously Mm. its history going back generations. And yes, it has officially made my list of places (laughs) we have to go. I got my information from National Geographic, Mental Floss, Said Like Ossuary History, and Atlas Obscura, and Wikipedia, obviously. Whenever I see pictures of like, like the underground bone depositories or the mausoleums in Paris, Mm -hmm. or the mausoleums, or I don't even know what they uh, what they call it. I'm awe-inspired. It's just, it is, it's very morbid, but incredibly beautiful. And you're showing me a picture of the, of the church. And yes, I mean, that's, wow, that is really beautiful. I never thought stringing together skulls and hanging them from a ceiling would be appealing. But yes, okay, we're going there. <laughs> right? It's incredible. And it's hard to find in the photos that I've seen any decor that is not made of bones. I think there is a painting. It's like 
It's like a still life and really weirdly out of place. <laughs> That's just fascinating. I'm really looking forward to going and seeing the Sagrada Sagrada Familia. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean, close enough. Yeah, yeah, fine. That's the cathedral in Barcelona that they've been building nonstop, pretty much, except during the war years uh, for 150 some odd years. It's incredible. It's not made out of bones, but it does look like it. Would, the architect was Dr. Seuss, and I'm all for that. <laughs> Super excited. Hey, guys, if you haven't had a chance to leave a positive review for us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen, we would really appreciate that. It helps us push the show forward. A, uh, a nice review is always appreciated. Yeah, anywhere that you listen to your podcasts, if you want to pop on there and say uh, that you like us, that would be nice. Even if you have to lie. <laughs> We'll see you guys next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2022 All rights reserved Hello everyone, Stakuyi here And I'm Gabby and we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist, and we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.